0: Welcome to the, 30 Welcome to Cersei to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome, Welcome to, to,
1: to Make Matriarchy make Great matriarchy Again. Matriarchy make it, Matriarchy Great Again.
0: And welcome everyone to the 34 Cersei Salon. Make matriarchy great again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. And as always, I have the pleasure of being here with
1: Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone.
0: Yeah, so Dawn, we have a very special guest today. Would you like to absolutely. take it away?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have a very special guest today, Mary Mackey, who is uh, among other many other things. Um, a writer, and uh, she worked on. Uh, she wrote a trilogy of books, well, a series now, because you went back and wrote a prequel um, about uh, a sort of based on and integrating Maria Gimbutas's work. Um, they are fiction novels, but they are. Deeply uh, intertwined with the research that Maria Gambutis did. So, Mary, um, we'd love to have you introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us, because your bio is quite extensive, tell us what you would like them to know about you.
2: Well, hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. whoa <laughs> right we have your yeah, well, maybe, section for oh, you. Yeah. i appreciate <laughs> praise you can know that about me um i uh have written um a lot of novels and poetry uh, and I do it for fun. I mean, you know, I've, I've got like 14 novels and eight collections of poetry, but I've loved writing ever since I was really little and I get a great deal of pleasure out of it. And I think if I were stranded in Antarctica, I'd probably write for penguins. So, you know, it's, uh, I also am a very social person. I love to talk to people. I love to communicate with people. Um, and I, I, I'm very happy that my writing's been able to do that. It's been I've been able to talk to people all over the world that way, and it's been a real pleasure for me. I'm really social. Um, I love nature. I love to be out in nature. I've spent I spent about six years living off and on in a remote jungle field station in Costa Rica when there weren't any roads into it, and they provisioned us by airplane if they remembered us, which sometimes they didn't. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've spent some time in the Amazon, and um, when I was in college, I was heavily influenced by a professor named Richard Evans Schultes, who's the father of ethnobotany, and I became very interested in plants, but not having too much mathematical skills and such. I didn't have the chops to major in science. You know, my alternate life would have been as a tropical botanist, so Mm -hmm. I've written uh, a lot of poetry about the jungle. And I was also been very fortunate, I think, uh, to have um, come across the work of Maria Gambutis, which allowed me to combine my feelings for the preservation of the world with uh, the understanding of the cultures of the Neolithic and um, that she so brilliantly researched. So I think that's a been a big piece of good fortune for me and you know, for for fun, when I'm not writing, I like to uh, sit and talk to friends and I like to canoe and, you know, I hike a bit. And um, so I'm, you know, I like the outdoors, but I'm perfectly happy sitting in front of my computer writing something. Um, it's a lot of pleasure to write. I don't suffer when I write. I often wonder if that's a detriment, you know, you're supposed to, but I don't. And, uh, <laughs> you know yeah i know I've, I've worked at it but you know i actually find i suffer less when i'm writing because i'm having fun doing it
0: nice. so it's always been a
2: great a great joy to me to write and i am i love to tell stories i'm a born storyteller i think and i think if i'd lived in the neolithic i had been one of those people sitting around the fire you know telling stories telling right. and telling stories to children telling stories to people and and I come by that pretty, um, you know, to my family in Kentucky, they were farming family in Western Kentucky and they'd sit around on the porch afterwards and they'd, they'd tell these stories. And some of them were really pretty ghastly for small children to listen to, but oh, dear. I, I actually thought, you know, farming was something you did so you could tell stories that took me a while to realize that wasn't true. So, um, yes. you know, it was, so it's, it's been in my life forever. Uh, you know, I afflicted stories of my brother when he was small. I I told stories to my friends and had also imaginative stories at recess when I was in school. So I'm a storyteller, a poet, and somebody who really loves doing it. Lovely. Oh, oh that's wonderful. wonderful. That's wonderful. Could,
0: can I ask you a question, Mary? I'm, you You mentioned Mariegum Buddhist, and I know your writing is tied with it, and you had mentioned but there is a passage in your one of your stories, one of your novels, that um, kind of sets up what, what your connection to what we cover, what we talk about on this podcast a lot, which is the matriarchies, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the matriarchies of old Europe. Could you maybe uh, share that passage with us and maybe tell us a little bit about how you discovered, how you found out about this world that Gambutas had.
2: Yeah, uh, let me start with the the second half of your question and then I'll read the passage to you. Um, I had written a book called, um, I was sitting in the library, I I taught at Cal State Sacramento creative writing and film for many years, I'm retired now. One day I was sitting in the library grading papers and I just picked a book off the shelf and it was called History Begins at Sumer and it was about the um, cultures of Sumeria many thousands of years ago. And I thought, oh my gosh, this would make a great novel. And I wrote a novel called The Last Warrior Queen, which is about the last matriarchies in Sumeria. And um, I wrote this novel and, you know, put it out there and it it did okay. People weren't quite sure what to do with it, but it was a a historical novel, but I imagined the goddess rituals and, you know, all sorts of things like that. And so fast forward about 10 years, And I get a phone call from a guy named John Loudon at Harper, San Francisco. And he says, we have a manuscript we'd like you to look at. We think you might like to write a novel about it because you wrote The Last Warrior Queen. And besides being amazed that anybody had actually read The Last Warrior Queen in the last (laughs) 10 years, (laughs) it's not shocking to me. I always feel like, I mean, my writing actually has done very well. But as a writer, I often feel like it just falls into a dark hole. You know, you never know. unless people write back to you what's going on um i uh, i said oh, oh all right send it to me i was I, you know people are always saying i have an idea you know you should write about and i think well that's your idea you should probably write about it but right. they, they sent me the manuscript and it turned out to be maria Gimbutas' civilization of the goddess oh, and i read it and i was i just said i must write novels about this this is exactly what i've been looking for my whole life uh it it combines my feelings about how people should live with relationship to the earth and protecting the earth and feeling the earth is sacred my my feminism and my feelings about uh how women and men should be on equal partnership basis these communities really existed it you know gives people hope for different ways for people to live and so i thought but i'm gonna have to ask maria Gimbutas. i didn't know I'd never heard of her at the time, but I soon found out who she was. I'm Mm going to have to ask her. And I I thought I'd better do that in person. So I went down to L.A. and she invited me out to her place in the desert. She had a place. And I thought I was really nervous because she was really famous and I was really scared. And I thought I'm going to talk to this woman and tell her I want to turn her incredibly important academic research into novels. You know, (laughs) was she going to like it? And she was wonderful. She greeted me with an apple pie. She <laughs> greeted me with huge amounts of respect. It turns out Eastern Europeans really respect writers, you know, which is, it's good because in the United States, some people respect you, but other people think you should really get a real job. You right. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. So she was, and we just we had this wonderful conversation. We we talked about things, and at one point, I said, "Well, you know." uh, do you imagine that they knew about this, that, or the other? And she said, "I don't imagine. You know, I'm a I'm a scholar. Your job is to imagine. You go and imagine the parts that have been left out." Nice. And it was so wonderful. That was like, do it, you know, do it. And she was very supportive. And she um, she loved the novels. The year you know, the horses came, she helped me on it. She answered questions for me when I had them about her research. And my, my desire was to take her work and make it available to a huge popular audience that wouldn't necessarily read a scholarly work with lots right. of footnotes and such things. And it worked. I mean, these novels have been selling very, very well ever since then uh, and have brought this vision that she had to um, an audience that would not have heard of it before. Um, And what I did was I went through the books and I looked at everything and then I put together with as much accurate detail as possible the cultures of Europe 6,000 years ago. The goddess-worshipping, earth-centered, earth-worshipping, matriarchal, matristic cultures of 6,000 years ago. And um, there's a piece in The Year the Horses Came, which is the first book in the trilogy, um, where the main character, Mara, A young priestess has been uh, given something to give her visions by her mother, who's also a priestess, and she sees the whole world of the goddess. And it's important to know that these these cultures are not fantasies, that they really existed, that there is plenty of archaeological evidence for them becoming more obvious as time goes by. And but this is a good summary of the way it worked. And basically you get the goddess, which is, you know, the earth is naturally female because it brings forth life. So you get these cultures which really worship the earth and worshipped the bringing forth of life from the earth. And this is Mora's vision of what that was like and also her vision of an invasion that's going to come off the steppes of Eurasia um, by nomadic tribes which are going to conquer and um, in many Cases you know, obliterate and perform genocide on these peaceful cultures, um, although it takes a long time for them to do this. It's a 2,000-year um, struggle. Um, and so she's going to, she sees the warning, and she sees the culture, and here it is. When Mara woke, she was flying high above the land of her people. Her mother was flying next to her, and they were both birds. Her mother had powerful wings. Her wings were the wings of a sequel. She looked down on a sea so blue it looked like a morning glory. Deep keeled boats with white linen sails skimmed across the waves, carrying copper, obsidian, pottery, olive oil, salt, wine, and rare herbs. Along the shores of the sea, there were great cities with temples and public squares. And she could see people going about their daily lives, making pottery, working gold, mining, weaving, worshipping, planting seeds, nursing the sick, making love, giving birth and caring for children. She flew higher. Beyond the cities, there were more cities and villages stretching east and north as far as the eye could see. And there were rivers and forests and many people, all different, yet all worshiping the goddess earth. Some raised goddess stones to her. Others carved her image in marble or jade stone. Still others took clay and formed it into her likeness. To some, she appeared as a sacred snake whose coils were the endless energy of life itself. To others, she was the holy bird who brought life and death, or the dog who guarded young life, or the womb-shaped frog. In the north, she was often worshipped as a pregnant bear or doe, while to the south, she often appeared as a bull bearing the horns of the crescent moon. But no matter how she revealed herself to her people, her commandments were the same in every village and city and forest. Her children sang of her love for them and their love for her. And as Marah hovered all of this, a voice spoke to her, go higher, it commanded. And so she went higher. And as she rose, the air grew cold, and she saw beyond the lands of the goddess, there was another land all covered in grass, where men in leather tents prayed to a god of war and killed each other in his name. Their god was a god of exile who lived in the sky, and the earth was a dead thing to them. And as Murat watched, the men mounted their horses and began to ride west, setting fire to the land, killing the animals, destroying the fields and forests, laying waste to the cities, and people fled in terror before them, and a great moaning rose up in the east like a dark cloud drawing nearer all the time. Look, the voice commanded, the time of destruction is coming, and you, Marah, are my messenger. Go east and warn my people, warn my children, that the riders are on their way. Take your brother with you. And... To prove you speak the truth, yes, Marat said, "I'll go." And as she spoke, her wings failed, and she began to fall and fall and fall until everything was darkness and falling. Now that passage is a combination of probably a hundred pages of Maria Gimbutas' research, where every mm-hmm. artifact mentioned, every symbol mentioned, is uh, has been excavated, has been categorized and has had articles written about it. And so I synthesized and combined them into this visionary moment. So you could see the two worlds poised on the brink of colliding with each other.
0: That's really beautiful writing and just an amazing, just a vivid passage. That's just incredible, Mary. Thank you. Uh, I think the thing that also I'm thinking of too is Not to, I hate when we, when people make sort of like overly topical moments, but we are living in a moment where in that very region, there is an invasion going on. So it's just kind of interesting to hear echoes.
2: Yeah. I actually been thinking about that lately. It's, it's truly amazing. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's of course not history repeating itself, but the similarities are really amazing, you know, in, in many ways. And it's, uh, It's stunning for, for people who may be listening later, we're speaking about what's going on right now um, for us in, in Ukraine. Right. Right.
0: And, and that the, the invasions coming from the Eurasian steppes, literally again. Right. So,
2: you know, a fire and destruction and the destroyer, destroying of peaceful cultures. Yes. And the destruction of history,
1: because this was an area, you know, that was rich in, um, in goddess culture and in many ways in the Ukrainian society, as they started to uh, sort of recover from the, the Soviet control and and, right. and reawaken elements of, of traditional Ukrainian culture, there's a lot of the goddess emer- emerging there and surfacing um, and uh, to see sort of uh, the hand of imperialism and conquest once again, uh, you know, stretching out to grab that land. Is, it's heartbreaking.
2: Well, you know, I think the great, I, I believe that one of Maria Gimbutas' brilliant observations and I, something that I call is the great wrong turning in Western culture. And, you know, Western culture in many ways has become kind of the uh, universal, you know, metropolitan culture of a lot of the planet, unfortunately, with this aspect Mm -hmm. in it, this wrong turning of seeing the earth as real estate instead Mm -hmm. of something sacred. And partly I wrote these books to encourage people to re-sanctify and re-honor the beauty and the creation of the earth and when i was writing them i wanted to understand what it would have been like to be someone who lived in cultures that were like this there's no sign of genocidal warfare in these cultures there right. you know i'm sure they had con- some conflicts i'm sure n- not everybody was nice you know that's not not possible but there's no genocidal there're no weapons of war you know and this 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 turning from communal property and um, uh, you know, respecting and loving, and encouraging, and living lightly on the earth, to seeing the earth as real estate to be exploited and to be a domin- have dominion over it by people, has been a terrible thing. And you know, there's also similarities in the same kind of invasion of the New World, when men on horseback came into the New World. And uh, you know, not all those cultures, of course, were peaceful, but there was the same sort of invasion. It's very important for these books to understand that the horse did not exist. In Europe 6,000 years ago, it had been, it had died out during the Ice Age. So when mm. the horses are brought in by the nomads, that means that they have a weapon of war, um, which you might think of now as almost like nuclear weapons as they come in. You know, if you live next to everybody in, in communities where you don't have that kind of transportation, then if you go and loot their community, they will come back and loot your community. But right. if you, Right. But if you have horses, you can do something and be, you know, miles away. Nobody can catch you. Also, when you're on horseback, you have a a, a powerful, you know, weapon because there they, they made the nomads had these weapons they could use on horseback for people who were on foot. Um, right. They could move fast. They had spears. And you can see these in the museums in uh, Romania and Bulgaria. I did A lot of research for these books, actually after I read Maria Gimbutas, I went to Romania and Bulgaria and I went to the museums and uh, looked at the kinds of um, artifacts from the cultures of old Europe, that's the Europe before the invasion, and then the culture of Europe after the invasion of the horsemen. By the way there were no forts in Europe at this point uh, before the invasion um, there were you know little fences to keep out goats but there were no walled cities the first forts come in with the nomads and they're sometimes built over the ashes of the city of cities of the uh, mother people of right. Old Europe right yeah you
1: you mentioned that in the uh, in the book as Mara is making her journey east and going mm-hmm going through the individual goddess cultures. And I love the diversity of, of ways in which the goddess was worshipped. So you see that, you know, in one culture, she's represented as a snake and another as as a bee and another as a bird. And it's mm-hmm. just wonderful that she just sort of absorbs that and is like, ah, it's the goddess. She has a different right. shape here, but it's the goddess. Um, right. But, You know, the idea of the way she looked at those cities before she has her unfortunate encounter with the nomads. And then after, you know, she sees them as these gorgeous cities. But then after she comes back from her encounter with the nomads, after she escapes, Mm -hmm. she sees, you know, cities that are undefensible because of where Mm -hmm. they are positioned. And it's a completely different way of looking at her you know her civilization before and after
2: well you know i wanted to make their her their you know they they resist the people in these in, in these novels they do resist and uh i wanted to make but i wanted to make them pacifists you know i didn't want them to you know i mean the question is how do you fight off a ruthless violent enemy without becoming like them i mean that's right. a real quandary and i worked that out in various ways Um, in the novel and in the novels in the series of novels um, as it you know as it progresses that way Um, but you know one of the great joys of writing these books was that in the year the horses came particularly the first book she travels across a Europe that's still at peace a Europe that still doesn't have this so you get like a a tour of all the goddess cultures of Europe. Right. I intentionally take her through all the major shrines and places, and she sees the rituals and the prayers and the and the and the communal, you know, harvesting of various things. You know, before I, I read Maria Gimbutas's work, I thought Neolithic people pretty much were hunter gatherers living in the forests. And, of course, there were some of those people left, but they had cities. Some of those cities had 20,000 people in them, right? Uh, particularly in Moldova. There's a city which I call Kataka, which has been excavated, which is a huge spiral city. And it had, you know, huge numbers of people in it. So I also got to fill in all the blanks of, you know, artifact you know ceramics stay house house frames you know they may be excavated uh, bones can be excavated but what what was the poetry what were the mm. prayers what were the rituals and as a poet as well as a novelist i got to make those things up
0: Mary you had mentioned um, how when you discovered uh, American Buddhist's writings it was something you've been looking for your whole life so could you maybe talk about that a little bit more what what were you Prior to the Buddhist, what were you hoping, wanting to see? What was it that you were, you know, in a sense waiting for or, or hoping to find out more about? And then what was it about the Buddhist writing that connected you with that?
2: Well, really, there are, are two aspects of it that really spoke to me strongly. One was that at the time that I was, you know, being educated, there was um, pretty much a theory that on, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, that human nature was naturally competitive, nasty, only the, you know, only the toughest survived, Um, you know, social Darwinism, in other words. Um, And I actually wrote my doctoral dissertation on Darwin and the 19th century novel, um, trying to refute this. (laughs) So I had been, but I had been looking for some evidence that, that human beings had lived in ways that did not involve conquest, exploitation, Constant warfare, um, and you know the fact that you know natural violence uh, only controlled um, and and rarely controlled. Often at that point, so th- that was number one. I was also looking for something that spoke to the equality of men and women, and to the place of women both in you know, society and religion. You know, I was I was came up at a time when. You know, I was supposed to be a housewife. You know, I was supposed to be some uh, marry, marry well. And I remember uh, women when I was in college, some women saying, oh, you know, I'm really interested in the law. I think I'll marry a lawyer. You know, it was so there was there was very few place for women. I mean, you didn't see women in Congress to speak of it, uh, at all, really. You, know, you didn't see women. Um, on television as anchors, uh, it's it's almost unimaginable. Uh, I think now um, the way it was. At just, uh, the time.
0: If just to jump in, I find that astonishing. You've heard people women say, "I'm interested in the law, so I want to marry a lawyer."
2: That's right. That's what people that were yeah. wild because there was no see there was no opening. You know, it was very hard. My own mother was a really rather brilliant chemist, uh, and actually in World War II she worked um, for Mead Johnson and Eli Lilly doing analyses. For various kinds of, uh, you know, kinds of um, aluminum foil to be dropped to foil radar and stuff, and she, you know, did V vitamins. She couldn't get in medical school because they said to her, "Well, you know, you have every recommendation, but we don't take women. Right. Uh, women so, take men's jobs. We don't take women," and that was just true all the way down the line, you know. So when I was younger, you know, I. I I, looked, I thought, I want to write. So I need time to write. And I need to have a job to support myself because I don't want to be dependent on somebody. I want to be independent. And I thought, well, I can be a teacher or a secretary or a nurse. Um, and, you know, those were pretty much my options. Right. And so I thought, you know, I think I'll have more time as a teacher, and I'm too short to enforce discipline in high school, so I better get a doctorate and, be, and try to become a <laughs> professor. <laughs> so I did. You know, that's what I did. That was my plan. And I'd looked at other writers, you know, and they a lot of them starved in garrets. You know, like Faulkner couldn't get a three dollar check cashed at one point in his life because, you know, writing you might make a lot of money one year, but it's not consistent. Plus, no dental benefits. So right, I just, yes. I was, you know, so I decided to become a writer. So I was looking for uh, some kind of validation that there was, were societies where women fully participated, where they were, you know, had e- equality, and where the earth itself was respected and preserved and taken care of. And so, you know, Maria's work really showed me that that had actually existed. I then found it again in the small, um, many small tribes of California, uh, where there were, you know, about 10,000 years of relative peace in California. And so it helped me believe that perhaps peace and communal living and mutual supportiveness and mutual aid um is as innate in the human nature as the other side of the coin. And I also, you know, wanted to find some kind of spiritual life where women were seen equally in some ways. Now, some of the Protestant religions have been reasonably good about that, but in general, it was, you know, it was very gendered uh, and very gendered toward the male. And I spent a lot of time writing these novels thinking, why were the nomads so, um, believe so much in a sky god why did they say that everything good was in the sky and everything bad was in the earth and you know i'm not i'm not writing scientific articles about this but i think one reason is that when you're on the steps the seven thousand mile long steps of eurasia i think actually seven mm. and a half thousand miles long which is like kansas forever okay except it's, <laughs> right it's, it's much tougher than Kansas um, it's a very harsh environment in many places uh, it's extremely cold um, and you know the res- it's not you know it's been farmed now in, in the dark soils of places like Ukraine but a lot of it's not suitable for farming. These were hurting people. What was the one thing above them that that never changed? What was the one thing they could rely on? What was the one thing that was there? That was the sky. And, you know, if you're out in that flat land, what you see is sky. That's what you see in flat land. And I think they looked at the sky and thought the gods must be up in the sky. They're sure not going to live down here. And I really believe that that had a lot to do with the development of sky gods and the moving away from the earth. And as I said, I think that moving away from understanding that the earth is a great, beautiful, generous, well-balanced living organism, that it's not dead real estate under your feet, um, is the great wrong turning for Western culture. And I practiced walking on the earth when I was writing these novels so that I could feel the earth as a living body. I said, I'm going to walk on the body of my mother. I'm going to right. feel the body of my mother supporting me beneath me. And I just practiced that as a kind of personal meditation um, as I was planning the novels. And it was interesting because I'd walk on the grass and I'd walk that way and I'd feel it. And then I'd walk on concrete and roads and I'd think, oh, we've paved her over here. We can't yeah. feel her in the right. same way. And it's a very interesting sort of spiritual process for me.
1: Yeah.
2: And there is some evidence that there
1: is an actual microbial exchange between Hmm. the soles of our feet and the soil that we're walking on when we walk barefoot on the earth. So it really is a relationship that we have covered over. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I just wanted to bring in here is that, um, you know, the... The sense of seeking for this alternative to the patriarchy that we live in now. And, mm-hmm. um, and how writing it, you know, you said, you know, not everyone is going to read a scholarly journal, and that our artists, our novelists, our filmmakers, our storytellers, are the ones who show us Alt- those alternatives, you know, we look around the world, we are so immersed in our culture, it's the water in which we swim, that we need these voices to come in and tap us on the shoulder and remind us, this is not the way it has to be. It That's can true. be a different way. And, um, you know, we, we rely on novelists like yourself, uh, to, to introduce that imaginative possibility.
2: Yeah, it's true and you know people they need they need plot and character and they need you know human human beings that's what characters are they see we put humans in there we, we humanize it we, we let people understand what it's like from the inside and I think that's a really really important part of part of the whole thing. I also like to often point out that patriarchy isn't good for most men. Right. Patriarchy involves the alpha male you know, the the guys that run it, the kings, the, the nobles, the, the, the you know, warrior chiefs, whoever they are. And it's, and then the men often get to be cannon fodder, or in mm-hmm. this case, bow and arrow fodder. You know, it's not, it's not, um it's not good for men. And I was very interested in making sure that the goddess cultures, and I'm sure they did, had places for men and particularly young men to express their energies in ways that were supportive of society so that they could be loved and and complimented for and and praised for their strength and for what they could do. And valued for it. Yeah, yeah, I have passages about that where special rituals are for, particularly for younger men, that allow them to participate in the community and be greatly valued and um, not have to fight in uh, endless wars. Yeah.
0: I think it's also, that is really important because I think there's, there are at times a misconception about this, like a patriarchal brotherhood notion that somehow one of the things that always strikes me is that patriarchy is bad for most men, particularly if you are not the tribe of the patriarchal invasion, Mm -hmm. because those guys just get crushed. Yeah, And so what happens is, yeah. And you, I mean, we see it in the genetic record. We see it in the archeological record, but we also see it in the modern world because again, it's this, there, there is no real brotherhood for a patriarch for a patriarchy. It's about, who gets to be on top and control whatever resources, whether it's women or money or whatever it is that they are trying to conquer? The power, so yeah, it's yeah. power. Yeah. yeah, it's not yeah. good for anyone but the ones at top. And we and, are seeing a lot of that now.
1: Yeah, and you know, men are 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 sort of uh, tricked into this terrible bargain where, like, you support this system on the off chance that you might someday be the dude on top. But right. in the meantime, you are giving, you know, you are giving everything to a system that um, that is oppressing you just as much as it's oppressing women. So, yeah, it's
0: uh, and uses uses all sorts of tricks like Don and I talk about there are uh, I. Almost want to put like a patriarchal guidebook for the tricks and stratagems that these uh, sort of patriarchal overlords use from divide and conquer to the Trojan horse to all sorts of things. And it still plays out. My my main point is it still plays out in today's world exactly in, in the same way, but with slightly different techniques like media, and social media and all that stuff. Um, I'm wondering things, if you could. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Please.
1: Yeah, I wanted to build a little bit on a point that you made about how does a peaceful society, a nonviolent society, how do you resist an offensive, aggressive, violent society without becoming them? And I think you make a really good distinction in the book of the difference between defensive and offensive war. Mm-hmm. Because That's true. the. Yeah, the nomads are the offensive war. You know, they're the Mars god of war that comes in and brings the war to other people, whereas the goddess cultures, they realize that if they want to survive, they have to defend themselves, but they're not in turn going out and trying to wipe out the nomads. No, they have
2: no interest in conquest at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the difference between the defending yourself, which... You have to do, you know, at some point, nonviolence, if you want to survive, becomes defense, but it, you can defend yourself without becoming the aggressor.
2: And without taking on the thought patterns and the religions and the attitudes of the aggressor, uh, which is really, really important. And, you know, a lot of what happened is it said it takes two thousand, this isn't like Hitler rolling into Poland. This isn't like an invasion that happens all at once. It takes 2000 years for these various tribes to work their way across to Europe. And, you know, what happens is there are still places where the goddess cultures survive into historical times. Uh, Crete, for example, places in Ireland, Um, You know, there are there. And what Maria Gambuda said, and I think it's a wonderful metaphor, is that Western European culture becomes a marble cake where you get the two cultures mixed together, you know, um, and you get the you always have the women's culture of the herbalists and the midwives and the and the rituals which are preserved. And sometimes uh, they attempt there's an attempt to to uh, eliminate these women through persecutions through heresy and various things. But the stories and the cultures remain and they endure and you can still find them to this time. I had I taught a wonderful course called Grandmother, Mother and Me for a long time where you wrote your grandmother's biography, your mother's biography and your autobiography. It was oh, a course wow. I taught when I was teaching. Yeah, I, I taught creative writing and film for many years at Cal State Sacramento. And I had a student in my course, who was the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter of Sicilian witches. (laughs) That's (laughs) fantastic. And I believed her because I read all of her, you know, I read her stuff. She was was not a fiction writer. And, you know, it was just amazing. And it just goes, you know, these traditions had persisted heavens knows how long i don't know how long the sicilian witch tradition had and they were they were good witches they wouldn't they weren't like uh they were like glenda the good in the oz books you know right. they weren't right. they weren't casting evil spells which was considered uh i don't think they would have put it this way but bad karma you know it was not right. a good thing to do. yeah but but this here was a tradition still alive in our time, you know, in, that um, was at that point, the 20th, late 20th century, um, that I have no idea where its roots are, but I, I bet if you look, they would be very, very, very old roots mm. that were that went way back and this stuff did persist and, you know, it's there and it's, it is an, you know, Western culture has this underlay in it of women talking to animals of, of men talking to animals of this, of, you know, kind of peaceful, uh, alternatives, uh, to, um, Social Darwinism to nature, red tooth and claw. And so some of the culture had survived. And reading Maria Gamboudis' work was very important as I wrote the novels because it clarified exactly what that survival was coming from uh, and documented it.
0: Right, right. A lot, a lot of the culture in the West, especially in Don and yeah. I have talked about this on other uh, podcast episodes, is that there is that that tension. I mean, like you say, that marble cake, which I hadn't heard before. It's a great expression. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very obvious that the matriarchal patriarchal tension is just always there in the West. That's the reason you have these uprisings of movements of women and feminist movements and these, these, it comes and goes like, you know, respiration and aspiration kind of thing where you're just the breathing in and breathing out. So you have that always there. So I think that's interesting. The other thing I think that we're one of the places you see it where I'm doing, a series on the iliad on our sister podcast called the parallax mm-hmm. and in the iliad uh so dr gary stickles is guiding us and in the iliad they talk about the two gods of war that people don't realize so there's Ares, that dawn had mentioned who's the god of war mm-hmm. but there's also athena who's the goddess of defensive war so it's an interesting you point out that it's defensive warfare that you wrote about that these matriarchal cultures were using and Even the Greeks somehow retained this notion that the goddess is about defensive warfare and Ares the god is about that offensive, aggressive kind of warfare. It's still baked in. It's one of those things still baked in in the the subconscious of the West.
2: Well, you know, the nice thing about novels, too, is... That they're entertaining. That, you know, I mean, these aren't tracks. These aren't, this isn't, a, these aren't a series of, you know, the, 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 there are four novels in this now The Year the Horses Came, The Horses at the Gate, The Fires of Spring, and The Village of Bones. So there are four novels here. They have characters, they have love stories, they have plots, they have excitement, they have, you know, they have, peril that's overcome. They have all sorts of stuff that sweeps you through it and you just kind of painlessly learn all the history. And that's what I love about historical fiction. I'm a great reader of historical fiction and I, you know, people who do really good historical research do a really good service in helping you understand and remember history. I can't remember very well lists of dates and, you know, who ruled what and when, but if I can show the daily life of real people, I can remember so-and-so did this at this time, and, you know, somebody else did that at the other time, and I can really understand it in a novel because I I read novels for for fun and also because I write them, but uh, you know, I also have, you know, in my time written screenplays, and I know how to write a plot that that works for people who want to just read a plot and have fun. So everything I have to write for these novels is layered. So first you get the entertainment and the plot and the love stories and hey, the sex. And in fact, my the funniest, <laughs> the funniest, okay, my favorite one star review on Amazon. Said this novel has far too much sex. <laughs> I thought, boy, I, I, maybe I should have paid somebody to write that. You know, <laughs> <It was> really <laughs> hilarious to me. And I thought that's a one-star review. Woohoo! You know, Are you so, kidding? No, that's it. the worst they could say about it. All that's right the worst then. <laughs> they could say about it. So anyway, uh, you know, so there's all this kind of stuff in it. Um, and uh, you know, tasteful taste is very tasteful. Oh, absolutely! And and
1: it is it's egalitarian. It is everyone. Sh- I mean, the the way the term that you used, I I loved sharing joy. Yes, that that's that, the term. that yes, yeah that, that that the matriarchal cultures, you know, because there isn't this great. Emphasis on the patriline and keeping mm-hmm. goods, you know, only through the male line, women's sexuality doesn't have to be policed. And so there is this wonderful, just sort of openness and ease and joy in the act of
2: sex. That yeah, well, is I think when women are treated as partners instead of possessions, the men are bound to have much better sex. <laughs> <I just laughs> got out there an advertisement for these kinds of cultures, so, you know, really, uh, people who are uh, oppressed and enslaved and forced into relationships that's not going to be a happy thing. But you know, all relationships in these cultures that I describe are consensual right. and yes. very clearly consensual.
0: Yes. And there's even yes. little
2: signals where you can say, okay, no or yes, you know, right? sort of like wrestling where you can tap people and say, you know, that, that you've got me pinned down too hard. You know, it's this kind of thing that says yes or no. And yeah. um, I think that importance of, of equality and consensuality is extremely important in happiness for human beings. Vital, vital,
1: I think. Yeah, absolutely yeah and and you know, contrasting that with um Vicky noble has uh, said this to us on more than one occasion um that the uh, the phrase in uh, and I've heard Max uh, Dashu say it as well that the phrase in anthropology is that the first slavery was women's slavery mm-hmm. that you know it's so co- such a contrast between um these nomadic cultures where women are possessions, they mm-hmm. are possessions to be. Um, you know, to be traded, to be, um, to be captured, to be controlled, to be, they don't have humanity the same way that the males in that culture have Mm -hmm. humanity. And there's, you know, it it does. need
2: a loving and equal footing. I mean, that's what's happening. But you know what that sounds like when you describe it, it sounds exactly what you do with horses. You capture them, you train them, you round them up. They're your possessions. Your wealth is in horses, and you can trade them back and forth. And you breed them. And you bring so them that and you can steal them from one another. So, yeah. you know, there's a, and uh, by the way, when, you know, the horses are these weapons of war, but we must remember it's not the fault of the horses. Of course <laughs> not. Yeah, of course not. I'm not saying, but I'm not saying horses are evil, you know. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, but I'm looking at what kind of cultures evolve this way. Also, in a culture where you have nomadic people um, who are, you know, riding, you know, who have horses, Horses and they don't have wagons. There are no no ways they could have them. There are no roads or anything. Um, you know, pregnant women and children don't travel as well. So it's a it's they're they're weaker. They're a detriment. They're not valued in the same way. And these cultures in Europe were stable agar- agrarian cultures where people lived in small villages and for generations at a time. And you don't have that um, that feeling of certain kinds of superiority of. Existence there, it's much, and in the grave goods, you find the grave goods uh, between men and women in the cultures of old Europe are often very equal. Uh, yes, and when uh, you see women doing trade; they seem to be doing all the stuff the men are doing. And there Burry. also
1: is, uh, you know, evidence of the bones that everyone is eating the same diet in the same amounts mm. you don't see like one person's bones showing signs of lifelong famine and mm-hmm. in the same area another person's bones showing signs of you know being exceedingly well off the mm-hmm. the grave evidence is that these were agrarian societies that everyone was pretty much on the same economic level in the society as well
2: now that you shared Mary, uh,
0: what you had. Yes. Yes. Mary, I wonder, uh, listening to you talk about this, and this is sort of a, an aside, you talk about your personal bio. You said you grew up and you're from Kentucky and from a farming family in Kentucky. Do you think, uh, you know, Kentucky is also known, of course, for its horses as well. Do you think that like there's just your personal experience sort of kept you opened your mind to this, this these kinds of. Um, these concepts of the earth, of horses, I mean, you could maybe see it a little bit. It's a sort of like an out there, uh, a little bit of an out there question, but just it just strikes me that when you mentioned being from Kentucky and you mentioned being from farming and the way you talk about the earth and you and your understanding of horses and how these things fit together, are there I think there are aspects of your own bio that made you more attuned to this maybe even well, traditions and experiences yeah that's
2: a very interesting question i actually was raised in uh you know in indianapolis indiana okay my oh, okay. father's family was from kentucky i spent my summers there my mother's family was from evansville uh, they were only 50 miles apart but they considered themselves completely you know on the other side of the world from one another uh but and, and you know western kentucky is small farms My family came into Western Kentucky probably in something like 1742. And they lived there ever since on these small farms. And there were no horses. They had mules. You know, Western Kentucky is known for mules for plowing Mm -hmm. and stuff. And they were still plowing. I mean, it was when I went down there as a kid, it was like, some kind of historical, you know, um, thing, you know, society, you know, uh, uh, you were stepping back in time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a hundred years ago. I mean, they had a well that you drew things up from the bucket. They plowed with mules. They had a spring house. They had no electricity. They had kerosene lamps. They made feather beds from their own Geese, they made soap from their own, uh, you know, from wood ashes. Oh, I know how yeah. to make hominy and soap. And my job when I was a little girl was to churn butter in a wooden churn that so many women in my family had used that the, the handle had been made smaller at the point where you grab it. Um, wow. And so these, these were totally self sufficient and needless to say, organic farms. Right. And, um, you know, I found this again when I visited some places um, some, some rural communes in California in the seventies, um, where people were, you know, had gone back to the land. And I kept thinking, boy, my aunt Abby could sure tell these people how to do some things that would make their lives better, you know, right. <laughs> because they had, they were except for buying salt and, and, uh, you know, they, they made their own hands and hung them in a smokehouse and they'd been doing that for a couple of hundred years. And so it was a very, um, Yeah, I think it opened me to an understanding of rural culture. What is rural agrarian culture like? And, you know, how do you live that way? And how do you know you live comfortably that way? And um, I think that that did have an influence. That and the the communes I I visited and stayed at for a while in the 70s where, you know, you saw everybody, you knew every single person. So no matter how far away they were, you knew who they were instantly. And you know that's a really different world than a world that we live in big cities, where most of the time we see nothing but strangers. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
1: You don't have the same sense of community in a big city.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I've written a series
2: well. of actually I've written a series of poems in my uh, in a, one of my my most recent book, "The Jaguars That Prowl Our Dreams." I've written both about the jungles of the Amazon and the tropics, and I've written about the uh, the uh, what life was in Kentucky at that point, because I wanted to preserve that understanding of what was life like there at that time um, in the poem. So it's an interesting contrast. And of course going into places that aren't urban and civilized and, you know, are completely pretty much without people dwelling them, at least at this point in time, I think was encouraged by the fact that I had lived without any of the modern conveniences or communication when I was a small child. Mm -hmm. Wonderful.
0: Given that we're we're coming down to the so sort of the end of our episode, are there just any things that you are focused on now, projects that you're creating that are that you'd like to one share with the listener, and that also might be tied back to some of the concepts that were that we've been discussing?
2: Yeah, I have just finished a a small book, hundred pages. It's going to be coming out from Marsh Hawk Press in September, called Creativity. And it's where I look at my own creative process. I've always, you know, I've always had a lot of ideas and create, uh, and it's, you know, my question, it's not a how-to book, but it's an understanding of what is creativity and what happens at that moment in the human mind when a creative thought is suddenly incarnated in words and you can communicate it to other people what happens there and i've i think it's the basis of mystical poetry i think it's you know it's partly you know and it can be creative in any way it could be creative in creativity in physics it could be creativity in poetry there's no i think all creative ideas come from this same vast place and mm-hmm. that's that's something that i think has prompted me to be able to imagine these worlds and to recreate them through imagination in a full way because when you write and at least, you know, with me, I want to make the world whole. I don't want you to look up and feel like you're, you see that there's no ceilings in the room. You know, I want everything to feel there. And I think understanding how creativity comes and that you don't have to suffer to create, which is a really important concept, yes. uh, is, is really important. And so I explore that in this book. And uh, it's partly autobiographical because I feel creativity comes from a wordless space, and you can't ask other people to describe the wordless space their creativity comes from because they can't describe it because it's sure. wordless. So I try very much to put it into words and to let the reader understand what is creativity and how it has come um, and comes out. And um, so that's what that's what I've been working on this year. And I've just finished it. Actually, it's it's just gone to the press and will be available in September.
1: Wonderful. So on that
2: note, where can our listeners find your work? Well, they can find my work at small press distribution spd org. They can find it on Amazon. Uh, all my books are on Audible. All my books are um, excuse me, all my novels are on audible. Some of my poetry books are on audible. Um, they are both in electronic form and in hard copy. Um, and they can certainly find them at their local independent bookstore when those reopen again completely after the pandemic. And if the bookstore doesn't have it, it's very easy for them to open to, um, order it. Um, it's, you know, they're all over the place. Um, you can also look at my website which is got the obscure name, Mary Mackey.com. So that's M- pretty easy to find that dot M-A-C-K-E-Y.com, where you'll find a little summary of all my books and links to places to buy them.
1: Really brilliant. This is brilliant. And you can also find
2: me on Twitter at <laughs> Mackey author. Uh, and I have actually an r- amazing number of Twitter followers. Um, I, I do a lot of stuff on archeology span and I, try to make it very positive. I've decided there's enough bad news out there. So if you want a Twitter feed that will never give you bad news, you can look at mine. I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. And
1: I highly recommend the series, Um, The Year the Horses Came, The Horses at the Gate, The Fires of Spring, and the prequel, The Village of Bones.
2: Mm -hmm. so it's called um, the earth song series earth song
1: series yes absolutely i got them through uh, my favorite website for uh used books uh uh, alibris.com but uh as mary said you know go to her website and uh and from there find ways
2: and you can get them in libraries you know i'm I'm more interested in people reading my books than selling books so you're welcome (laughs) to get them anywhere you can get them i'd be very happy to have you get them and read them and enjoy them and pass them along to people that you love.
1: There you go. Cause if you, you have to see it to be it, right? So mm-hmm. uh, introduce these ideas into your imagination so that we can manifest them and make matriarchy great again.
0: All right. Wonderful. Well, Thank you. Thank you, Mary Mackey, for joining us today and for sharing all of this really wonderful, these stories and, and your experience and your bio with us. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Mary, so much for joining
2: us. And thank you for having me here. It's been a real pleasure. Yay.
0: This has been the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking with Mary Mackey. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.
1: Take care, everyone, and blessed be.